You're tuning in to the Black Hollywood Live Network, featuring news, interviews, and commentary on all things Black Hollywood. Hollywood redefined. From Los Angeles, California, presented by Maria Menounos and streaming live thanks to Akamai Technologies. This is Black Hollywood Live. Justice is served. Featuring the week's roundup and commentary on legal news. Black Hollywood Live. Hollywood redefined. You're listening to Black Hollywood Live. And now, the host for Black Hollywood Live, Justice is served. everyone and welcome to this edition of Justice is Served. My name is Sarah Azari. I'm a criminal defense attorney and one of your co-hosts here today on Justice is Served. I am joined by my partner in crime co-host, attorney Chelsea Galicia. Chelsea, it's great to be in the studio again, the two of us. As always, love it. Yeah, and I actually I don't know why I I referred to referred to as uh, my partner in crime because her and I we butt heads a lot, but it's it's great because I think um, it, it gives our viewers different perspectives on, on all the cases and legal issues that we discuss here um, on Justice is Served. So we're going to start out as usual with our case of the week, um, putting the focus back on Ferguson, Missouri, and the deadly shooting of Michael Brown. The Department of Justice just this morning returned its decision uh, not to prosecute Officer Wilson for the deadly shooting of Michael Brown back in August of 2014. I'm sure I have not followed the news in the past couple hours, but I'm sure that the uh, the town of Ferguson is in uproar, as are other parts of the nation. Um, yesterday, we heard that the Justice Department found uh, a pattern and practice of racism in the police department and court system of Ferguson. So just ironic. Like- yeah, just exactly. Just, just like they have in, in various other cities, Cleveland, New Orleans, and, and I think one of the cities in, in Washington. We had talked about this uh, late last year with our uh, special guest, Dan Carver. And uh, and I thought, wow, that finally there's some peace and some maybe some reprieve for the protesters and um, for the African-American community who really was, you know, this was a big deal. Um, and and but no, uh, Officer Wilson will not be prosecuted because the Department of Justice says they don't find, even though there's racism in in the um, city of Ferguson and in, in its police department, they don't believe that he acted out of uh, racism and bias. They believe that he truly subjectively feared for his own safety when he shot and killed uh, Michael Brown. And, you know, I want to go over a little bit, um, Chelsea, about, you know, over the investigation and some of the statistics that were just yeah. up appalling to me. So the investigation consisted of um, various uh, reviews of thousands of pages of documents, including emails with horrible racial epithets and um, references to President Obama as a chimpanzee, um, that a black man can't hold the same job for four years, so he's going to be out of office very soon. Um, They referred to a group of African women dancing as Michelle Obama's high school reunion. Um, They referred to a woman who had just undergone an abortion, an African-American woman, as a crime stopper. Um, it was unbelievable. And what I learned uh, in the course of following this DOJ news was that 67% of Ferguson is black. That's two-thirds of the city, right? Yep. And um, 
Yet, in a police department of 50-somewhat police officers, there's only three African-American police officers. Why not have a proportionate number of African-American police officers that, you know, bear some kind of proportion to the population? So it's incredible um, that, and the DOJ, I don't think, had any difficulty finding that there's um, a pattern and, and practice of racism in this town. So they found that 88% of documented use of force incidents were against African-Americans. 85% of traf- traffic stops um, involved African-American drivers. 90% of those who were actually cited and ticketed were blacks. Uh, 93% of them who who were arrested were African-American. 95% of really petty infractions like jaywalking were blacks. And 68% less likely, the African, African-Americans were 68% less likely to get their case dismissed in court when it warrants a dismissal. It's unbelievable. Yeah. It's, it's that saying, I kind of hate the saying, but I hear, you know, men lie, women lie, but numbers don't. And I kind of think that that's what we're seeing here is that these numbers don't lie. They make it very clear what's been going on. But then when we narrow in on one particular case, it's like, oh, no, not, not in this one. So what these kind of two opposing findings that there's systematic racism and then that Darren Wilson will not be charged is like he must have been the uh, the ten percent that is just not at all. I'm not surprised by this, the, by the way. It, the DOJ, you know, I don't know, and with Eric Holder leaving the office is not in its strongest um, phase <laughs> uh, to come back and say this white officer actually violated civil rights statutes, you know, federal statutes. Now, you know, the, the bottom line with them is they say, okay, there's this um, pattern and practice of discrimination against African-Americans in Ferguson, targeting, targeting them disproportionately for traffic stops, use of force, and jail sentences. So, we ask now what, right? And what they do is they issue a court supervised consent decree like they have in all these other cities, um, essentially coming to an agreement with the officials of Ferguson to uh, implement programs, do away with certain policies and procedures to try to make it uh, unbiased, you know, to try to. But but didn't we hear from Dan Carver about how um, the racism in law enforcement begins in the academy and their training. Yeah, I remember him saying that. Yeah. I mean, there's so many factors that influence it. Uh, it's going to take a, a lot of training, a lot of untraining of what they've already learned. And retraining. Uh, I. It's going to be a long road, but I remember Dan saying that there were changes after um, the riots in L.A., Mm-hmm. Um, uh, oh my gosh, please remind me of his name. Uh, Rodney King. Yes, thank mm-hmm. you. So, because I had thought, well, that, that situation came and went and mm-hmm. did really anything change? And he said, yes. Yeah, so maybe this will, uh, spur some change, but it obviously can't come soon enough. Right. I mean, to me, this is like bad, bad Ferguson. Uh, you're racist and we're going to teach you how not to be racist. Well, I think for this issue, across the nation, because remember, it's not just about Ferguson, Missouri, right? For this to really be addressed, the change needs to be engendered and taught in the academy where where they're taught to be racist. Well, I mean, we heard about... What's the pool of applicants that can e- are even eligible for the academy? So we got to help everybody who wants to be eligible in that pool be able to. Right. Uh, because it starts with who you select to, to even become uh, a member of the, the academy to 
to be to be to, part of law enforcement. Yeah, yeah I mean, um, and, and you know, of course, um, police departments, police officers respond to this type of uh, court supervised program by the feds as having a chilling effect on their ability to do their job. You know, they're supposed to think quickly on their feet out on the field, and now they have to do this analysis of whether they can go after this person. What race are they? Um, whether this you know, amount of force is reasonable or not. Um, they should be thinking carefully about those kinds and of questions. But there's a fine the line between, yeah. you know, their ability to do their job quickly that they're trained to do and sort of being restricted by these types of policies. Well, also, if, if they take a little while longer to think of issuing a jaywalking ticket, I'm totally okay with that. And I know right. that some people are going to say, well, maybe it's because they're committing crime at a higher proportion than the, the non-African American community. But every study that I have seen Every article says that every race commits crimes in the same uh, proportions, uses drugs in the same proportions. So it's definitely not that their uh, their behavior warrants mm-hmm. the uh, disproportionate representation in these statistics. Mm-hmm. Interesting, though, in this case, when I read the statistics, uh, the African-Americans um, did not have the higher statistic or number of those arrested and charged with drug crimes. So everything else but the drug crimes, and I'm thinking there must be a lot of white meth heads in Ferguson, Missouri. I've never been there. I don't think I ever want to go. But, um, you know, but but this is – there's been lawsuits by police officers against their departments and cities um, for – they feel that they're placed in danger um, after following this type of federal protocol that's implemented. So, again um, – I think the Department of Justice is doing the bare minimum it can to to say, okay, look, we've stepped in, we did an investigation, this is what we found, and we're, you know, the ultimate answer to this or our response is, you got to take care of these steps. Um, we make a contract with you. Don't do this. Do this instead, etc. And we're all good. Well. All I want to say, my point here, is that I don't think this is the remedy to this very deep-rooted problem that we have. No, I think, though, it does validate what everybody's been feeling. Mm -hmm. And people outside of Ferguson have uh, sometimes been very um, mean-spirited about the protests that have been going on and I think this just serves to say no everybody they're right about their feelings that they've been overrepresented in these statistics are, is accurate they're they're right. on to something they're not making stuff up they're not exaggerating I mean all these emails and jokes about the African American the head of Sony got fired because of her uh, jokes right. that got leaked in the, those yeah. emails yeah. I wonder if anything will happen to any of the authors of those emails yeah. All right. So that's it about uh, on Ferguson and uh, the DOJ's decision so far. Um, I'm not sure where this is going to lead other than to rehash, um, you know, what we witnessed late last year with the riots and uh, uproars across the nation. But um, so long as there's news on it, we will bring it to you in the upcoming weeks. And I'm going to turn it over to you for On the Docket. Great. Okay. So we're going to do some major shifting of gears here and talk about blur lines and whether that is a ripoff of Marvin Gaye's Gotta Give It Up. So right now uh, a trial is underway to determine whether or not Pharrell and uh, Robin Thicke uh, and T.I. 
basically copied the song. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's actually another song on Robin Thicke's uh, album, Paula, that is also uh, thought to be ripped off of another Marvin Gaye song. So, By the way, I love that song. I love Blurred Lines. <laughs> it's one of my favorites. You know. So, so, if, so too bad you're not a juror on that mm-hmm. case because you'd be treated to a concert, sort of, if you right. will, of uh, Robin uh, Thicke playing the song. Um, the family of Marvin Gaye also wants to play the song. The judge has said that that would be okay, but it only a very stripped down version mm-hmm. because the family doesn't even own the sound recording. They mm-hmm. only own the sheet music, so they have to look very technically at the musical composition um, because, ironically, the one who owns the sound recording is Motown, who is owned by Universal, who also owns Interscope, who put out the song in the first place, Blurred put, Lines. Oh, okay. Right. So that's why this case is on a very, very narrow mm-hmm. issue of whether the musical composition is so similar when you look at it on sheet music. Now, I don't know anything about this kind of technicalities mm-hmm. in music, but I do know what sounds similar. So, shall we um, play yeah. the songs? Let's and take a listen. See if we can figure it out. This, of course, is Got to Give It Up uh, by Marvin Gaye, right? Yeah. This is the one that they're claiming is being copied. Yeah, the original. And so now we'll switch it over and listen to some blurred lines. See, to me, to me, and I, I, I can't break it down into chords. I, I hear that, um, you know, I don't know a lot about copyright law, but I hear that you have to have a certain minimum number of chords that are identical to be able to prove that you've infringed on the copyright of a song. And, but to my ear, it just sounds completely different. I can hear the similarities. You can? I can. Interesting. And he also played, he also played, um, uh, a medley of Michael Jackson songs and other songs to prove to the jury that there are a lot of songs that sound like other songs, but they're not copies. They're not copyright infringement. Yeah, that that would have been nice to hear as a juror, especially since they played my favorite song of all time, Which Michael is? Jackson's Man in the Mirror. Yeah. Um, but I don't think that Man in the Mirror sounds anything like Gotta Give It Up. I, they, they even have these experts, mm-hmm. musicologists, that are breaking the songs down, uh, the similarities of the hooks and the, uh, the, even, even the, the theme of the song that in Gotta Give It Up, that the theme is a wallflower mm-hmm. becomes a party person mm-hmm. and that in Blurred Lines, a shy good girl becomes sexually liberated. So they're, they're trying to show parallels in the themes of the songs mm-hmm. that, Chords, specific lyrics. Right. Um, this pretty technical. And that, and that raises the interesting issue of damages because uh, I heard that the gay family is claiming, or their lawyers are claiming that um, the damage, or I'm sorry, the profits from Blurred Lines were about $40 million to which, uh, if that's so, the gay family, if they were to prevail in this lawsuit, would get half of it because it's uh, that's sort of how it breaks. It, comes out to in, in copyright infringement cases, they would get like 
twenty million dollars. And so yeah. the defense is saying, wait a minute, no, uh, the popularity of the song and the profits made because of it are due to the racy video yeah. and um, the. Uh, Actually, I've never seen the video. That's interesting. Okay. So the racy video and... Um, this is not the highlight of the video for most people. Oh, it gets better. Okay. Um, so, I, it, you it know... It gets more naked. Ah, okay. Well, we're, we're a little more conservative than that here on Justice is Served. But, um, uh, you know, they, they're saying, look, it's not because it's because of the video. It's because of social media. It's not because of the composition solely. So um, it'll be interesting to see if, number one, they'll prevail. Number two, what the damages are. Because yeah. to me, um, I think this could be a landmark copyright infringement case if the gay family prevails. Because I always think, look, Especially a, a, an artist like Marvin Gaye, and you know Marvin Gaye, James Brown, these guys. I mean, these are the fathers and and predecessors of today's music, and artists are often inspired by these guys and their they songs. Even went on. Uh, Robin Thicke was on Oprah. Mm. Go Oprah, and said how he was um, so influenced by um, Marvin Gaye. Mm-hmm. The ironic then part is is that he later testified that during the writing of the song he was drunk and high on Vicodin Mm -hmm. and in reality didn't have that much to do with writing it Um, Mm -hmm. now and that's going to hurt him that's impeachment evidence Uh, it goes to his credibility to me it doesn't ring true why why come up with Marvin Gaye by name and say, oh yeah, he inspired me if it's, if there's no truth to that. Um, he just picked out Marvin Gaye out of all these different artists and, and, you know, all these different songs. I think what he, uh, this is my opinion, I think what he did say to the press or on Oprah, um, was probably true. He was saying he was inspired by this song, which there's nothing wrong with that. Artists are always inspired by other artists and other works, right? And now if this case comes down that they infringe a copyright of Marvin Gaye's Song, I think it's going to have a chilling effect on artists' cre- creativity. And oh, that's ab- what everybody's going to say. But I don't know. Maybe it'll force people to be more creative because they can't do something that sounds too close to something that's already been done. I right. do think that if the family were to prevail, they'll get damages on the sixteen and a half million dollars mm-hmm. that the song uh, directly made. So that's a, a detail that we don't. How get is that determined? That well, they already determined. Mm-hmm. Through records, it's been entered as evidence that the song made sixteen and sixteen point six five million dollars. So, what's the rest of the difference between the sixteen There's, and a half and the forty? They're saying it's tours uh, and okay. all that kind of stuff. So, mm-hmm. I think that the tour and all that stuff is too or speculative. Promotional materials yeah. and things. Like, uh-huh. But the um, the sixteen and a half million or so that the song directly made uh, will be something that the family may go after in a big way uh, if if they are successful in this Mm -hmm. and neither side is really backing down so it will be interesting to see how it turns out the trial is expected to last about a week so we should be at the tail end by now since it started last week and we'll you know how it goes all right so moving on um to a this is a bizarre case uh really interesting is al sharpton a racist. He is being sued. He and Comcast and uh, Time Warner are being sued for twenty billion. You heard that right, twenty with billion with a B, um, for discrimination against um, black-owned media. So, uh, Byron Allen and a group called the National 
Association for African American Owned Media have joined together to claim that the uh, that Comcast has essentially um, bought off Al Sharpton uh, so that Al Sharpton won't. Uh, Talk about how uh, discriminatory Comcast and Time Warner are in their exclusion of uh, black media uh, uh, being distributed by Comcast's um, channels and so forth. So, uh, $20 billion. Mm-hmm. Um, have you heard anything about where he came up with this number? And do you think that Al Sharpton's got anything to do with this? No, I uh, what what I got is that the that Comcast is essentially um, using uh, Al Sharpton um, to sort of cover for its discriminatory business practices. So I think you know I have to say that this lawsuit seems a little whiny to me. It's like wah wah, give us some money. You don't give the money to the African American. I don't me- think. To, speaking of, we wouldn't be partners on the same crime. I'm really going to disagree with you on this one. I think that, um, well, I'm assuming that the complaint is as articulate as Byron Allen has been Mm -hmm. on the shows that I have seen him interviewed on, Mm -hmm. where he can clearly trace how everything that seems like it's black media, like he uh, was asked about, well, Magic Johnson and, and P. Diddy, they have their own channels, uh, so they can't be just... No, I, I, absolutely, I absolutely think it's supported. I'm not I'm not uh, minimizing the evidence to support these allegations. I don't know what they are, but I'm, I'm assuming that if, you know, someone like Byron Allen is bringing this suit um, and this organization, that it would have some, some basis. But, you know, I think that the mistake of Comcast here is using Al Sharpton. Al Sharpton has been heavily criticized by the African American community. He is not taken seriously. In fact, you know, if there's one thing that black progressives and conservatives agree on, it's that uh, Sharpton is irrelevant. He doesn't represent black interests today. He is this archaic Baptist reverend who claims to be the African American spiritual leader, who claims to be, you know, the world on on uh, you know s- protecting civil rights uh, for the African American community and the African commu- African American community does not give him any credibility and so Comcast I think uh, and, and Byron Allen man he he said something like uh, they took they they paid off the least expensive Negro I mean that's that's the attack that he launched on Al Sharpton and I think what he's trying to say is look well, instead and also of- the most expensive one because they're claiming that Comcast or not they I should say Obama it, yes. yes that Comcast is the mm-hmm. largest contributor to Obama right so if this doesn't make people upset about money and politics. It should, because right. um, this is a much larger issue than just this case. Mm-hmm. But I, I think that if there's some real merit to it, that that Comcast has fifty billion dollars—no, not billion, million a year, mm-hmm. fifty million a year—that it spends on programming. Yeah, mm-hmm. and then only three million. and a half million has gone to an African-American program. So that's really, I mean, if we want to go back to the numbers that we were talking about earlier in Ferguson, when you follow the numbers, they just don't add up. Mm -hmm. They don't, they're not fair. They're disproportionate to the population, to the viewers. So I think he's onto something. And, um, I, I, I think this is not the first or the last, I should say that we're going to hear about this case. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think, I think that, uh, you know, 
uh, Al Sharpton's referred to as the black pawn in the in white the uh, white game, game, yeah, white yeah. economic game. And, and you know, it's interesting because Comcast has a chief diversity officer. It's hold its it holds itself out to be. Um, you know, very progressive when it comes to diversified programming. And so this attack is essentially saying, this is all BS. You've got the, the wrong cover show. up. Yeah, it's all show. And you really actually, um, discriminatory. You know, it's the opposite of what you're holding out to be. Yeah, because so. apparently Byron Allen has tried to make deals with Comcast and mm-hmm. Time Warner to distribute mm-hmm. his productions, and uh, it's been a no go. And apparently, they just spend all the money on Al Sharpton, um, giving to his nonprofit, throwing him fancy birthday parties, uh, rather than really paying uh, for. Black media too. And I mean, of course, we're going to follow this story, but ultimately, I don't think it matters who prevails here because it's, it looks bad for Comcast. Comcast is about to merge with Time Warner oh, Cable. Please don't say about to. Uh, hopefully, somebody will come to their senses like on net neutrality and it won't happen. But, well, but yeah, but it's bad for Comcast. I mean, this is a huge merger in the entertainment industry and it could very well go south. And so I wouldn't be surprised if Comcast just kind of throws a bunch of money at the plaintiffs in this case and settles. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. Twenty billion? You think they'll throw? No, but billion? of course that's not going to. You know, no, no lawsuit settles for the entire amounts alleged. But you know, I'm sure that they can come up with a fair settlement. It would probably be advisable if Comcast wants to go through with this merger and you know save face in the industry, essentially. But what's next on the docket? Okay, and so uh, we'll round up our on the docket um, series with a, a follow up to the Tamir Rice story. Um, A really unfortunate choice of words by the city of Cleveland in its response to the family's wrongful death lawsuit, essentially blaming the 12-year-old for failing to exercise care in preventing his own injury. You'll recall that this is the case where a 12-year-old boy was playing in a park uh, with his sister, and he was um, playing with a fake gun. A caller called to the police department and said that uh, somebody was waving around what appeared to be a fake gun. But less than two seconds after police arrived on the scene, he was shot dead. That's the problem. And mm-hmm. uh, you'll also re- remember that this is um, this is the young boy whose his older sister tried to run towards him and was uh, handcuffed and placed in the police car. Just really sad story. So then the family files this uh, lawsuit, and the city of Cleveland says basically it was the kid's fault. Um, and whatever the family's suffering is their fault. Basically, blame it on the victim and everyone else except for the city and the officer, essentially. The only, um, I don't know, classy player in this story that I can discern uh, is the the mayor, um, Frank Jackson, I believe is his name, who has come out uh, to say in a press conference that he is sorry uh, about the choice of words. He's sorry about what the family is going through. He called it insensitive. He even started to choke up himself thinking about how he would feel if this happened to his own um, grandchild. Uh, He said that while the uh, city needed to defend itself, that they... um, made a poor judgment in their choice of words Mm -hmm. and that the city is going to actually amend their answer to the lawsuit. I'm not sure, though, if any amendment to the um, 
the answer is really going to take the sting out of what was mm-hmm. already said and done uh, and the lack of responsibility that the city wants to take. Well, as far as the lack of responsibility, I, I agree that the uh, wording was probably bad. And, uh, you know, this is a 12-year-old kid. Um, yes, he was 5'7 and 195 pounds, which, which you know, the, the city's trying to use as a reason why the, the police Didn't know <laughs> killed him in less than two seconds. But, um, but that said, in any civil lawsuit, an answer is going to deny uh, the allegations in the complaint. It's going to deny that. It's going to point the finger at others. It's going to. I mean, that's that's. I mean, otherwise, you're saying, "Oh yeah, I did it. I'll pay you off for whatever amount Which you're alleging." Which would be a bad idea, <laughs> right? But that's not going to happen when you're talking about a 12 year old kid's you know, what his life is worth. Um, It's a wrongful death case. And the amount of money that's at issue here, I think that the... So I agree with you in the the substance, the way that they worded this was, was... really wrong, you know, and insensitive. But I do think that there's absolutely nothing unusual about the denial and, and trying to, um, uh, you know, point the finger at others. And they could have said it's not, you know, they could have done a general denial of the allegations or they could have said... Well, they uh, named 20 specific defenses. Right. So they're, they really know that they're being uh, examined in and whatever they said. Meanwhile, the police officer, now the Department of Justice actually um, has that similar consent court supervised consent decree that we talked about in the Ferguson that they're going to come out with uh, for for the city of Ferguson they have that in place in Cleveland because of the Rice case um but and and as a result have found out that this police officer who shot and killed Tamir Rice uh, had a checkered past of multiple use of force yeah. um and, and um you know, and they kept him. They kept him employed, and they kept him out on uh, out in the field despite knowing that. So their knowledge, I'm sure, is going to work against them in this lawsuit. But, um, but anyway, yeah. So uh, if there's better news, and actually, if there's not better news, we will still bring you the follow up. And that's it for on the docket. Ah. Now let's tip the scales. All right, tipping the scales. We're going to focus on medical marijuana, which um, that there's a trial in Spokane, Washington, that yet again pits state versus federal law. For those of you who are um, familiar with medical marijuana laws in California and other states where it's legal, uh, you know it, it's it's a it's 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 a complete irony because this in these particular states, uh, it is legal to grow, sell, and use medical marijuana with prescription, uh, but yet the feds don't care. Marijuana is marijuana, and it's illegal. Its possession is illegal. Its growth is illegal. Its sale and distribution is illegal. And um, I, I've had many situations with clients who are are stuck and can't make decisions about um, you know certain things in their lives, whether it's medical or you know uh, growing the marijuana for for medical sales um, because, you know, I can't really give them a very specific answer. I have to say you're doing this at your own risk because if you make too much money and you're doing really great in this business, the feds will come after you and seize your assets and, the you know, it, it'll, it'll draw the attention, basically. But um, so, 
what happened in the trial of Larry Harvey in Spokane, Washington, um, is that uh, Harvey is a cancer-stricken patient in a very late stages of pancreatic cancer. In fact, the prosecutors dismissed him out of the case, but his family and family friends and other individuals, usually these uh, drug cases are multi-defendant cases anyway, so all these other defendants are still on the hook and for very hefty sentences because they found firearms near the forest area behind the home where the marijuana growth was. So um, you know, in, under federal law, when there's firearms involved in a drug case, uh, it adds five, 10, or 30 years consecutive to the underlying sentence. So it's huge. However, if you make a deal with the government, you know, with the prosecutors, usually you're able to negotiate that enhancement out of the deal, um, which is, which is a, a victory for the client. But in this case, they've decided to go to trial and, you know, what first caught my attention was what's the issue what's the trial issue here because most of these cases are pled out there's no defense in in federal court you're growing marijuana you're breaking the law there's no defense that you're you've got cancer and it's medical yeah, they don't care you they can't don't use care medical bam so i'm going what is and i think having read a little bit into it and these activist groups that are involved in this trial in the background you know, they're trying to just make a point look federal government leave us potheads alone well um, it's not potheads these are you know a pothead to me is, you know I come up with the idea of just lazy people sitting well, these are the around. activist not- groups. So they, they do, they do have potheads in those activist groups, but, but this, all due respect. But, but this but, family was growing it to alleviate their family members. But no, of but there's, no, but there, but there's, you don't need a forest worth of marijuana growth for one cancer patient. The entire family didn't have cancer. It was this one guy, Larry Harvey, with cancer and, there's evidence that they've been selling, and and so what the federal prosecutors are convincing the jury of is that look, I'm sure this cancer is not- treatment is very expensive. They were probably using that money to pay for the cancer treatment. Good point. I would I would say that as a defense attorney, and somehow relate. But you know, again, under federal law, it doesn't matter. Um, the medical nature of it doesn't matter. The um, necessity of it necessity of it doesn't matter. And so um, maybe at sentencing it would be an issue. But you know, here they're saying, look, the family and these defendants are. High Hiding behind the medical necessity while they're making profits from selling this stuff. And um, anyway, I uh, what our question is to you as our viewers is we're curious what you think about this. If you or a loved one or someone that you know um, suffered from a terminal illness, would you risk federal prosecution um, on account of medical necessity? In other words, would you grow uh, and possess uh, medical marijuana, knowing that you could be in big trouble by the federal government. Uh, please tweet us at Azari Law and at Chelsea Galicia. And let us know what you think. We're, we'd love to hear from you. And um, I think that brings us to the close yeah. of our segment today. Thank you all for joining in as usual. Um, we look forward to bringing you more uh, of the latest legal news in the community. And we'd also like to keep the dialogue going during the week. So please find us on YouTube and iTunes and click like and post your comments and feedback. We really would love to hear from you um, as to what your ideas are. If there's a particular thing that you want to want us to cover, let us know. Um, we do listen and we'll see you next week right here on Justice is Served. Thank you, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye bye. 
from producers Maria Menunos, Dario Kristen, Tiana Hobson, Kevin Undergaro, and the entire BHL crew, we would like to thank you for supporting Black Hollywood Live, the first online broadcast network dedicated to African American entertainment. For questions and comments, contact us at info at blackhollywoodlive.com. Like us on Facebook, tweet us, or Instagram us at BHL Online. And I'm your BHL announcer, Scipio. Instagram me at Planet Scipio. Thank you for tuning in. The views expressed here are those of the host only and do not necessarily reflect the views of BHL or its owners or principals.